ESPN 1000 Hard Rock Casino White Sox Network. Now here's your host, Connor McKnight. Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome in to White Sox Weekly here on the ESPN 1000 Hard Rock Casino White Sox Network. I'm Connor McKnight. Sox fans, 2024 ticket plans are available right now. We offer a variety of plans. And when you lock in today, you'll get flexible payment plans, savings on single games, great seat locations, and more. For more information, visit WhiteSox.com slash season tickets. Second episode of our one-hour editions of White Sox Weekly here in the offseason. The playoffs rage on. We've got the NLCS and the ALCS. I think we're going to wait to talk uh, you know, a lot more playoffs. We talked a lot of playoffs uh, last week uh, because a couple of rounds had finished up and you kind of feel better. At least I feel better talking about kind of like the completion of series rather than, you know, there's some obviously big moments, right? The Bryce Harper, Orlando, Arcia kind of thing, the dust up that happened between the Braves and Phillies. That was a whole deal and seems to have propelled the Phillies into hitting dozens and dozens of home runs or at least continuing to hit dozens and dozens of home runs. I saw stat uh, earlier this week. So the average, uh, this was, you know, of the, before the weekend games got played, this is when the stat popped up, that the Phillies' margin of uh, victory, like four point something runs per game in a playoff stretch, is the highest runs, uh, highest margin of runs per game victory uh, that you've seen in a long time, maybe ever in the playoffs. Depends on how you want to go back through some of those series and some of the olden days stuff. But that makes them one of the most dominant teams in playoff history. So that's pretty wild, uh, especially offensively, um, even though their defense isn't super great. Something we're going to talk about a little bit here in White Sox Weekly, a little bit of defensive conversation. Anyway, some playoff conversation a little bit later on in the show. But I thought the main topic of the show today would be outfield defense. You know, we kind of go week by week with the uh, review preview episodes. We take each position. Last week, we took a deep dive uh, into the catching situation that the White Sox both had last year and seem to have going forward. And, and you know, obviously with the departure of Yosmanic Rondal, he's a free agent. The White Sox catching situation has a few incumbents, some young players that could see some playing time, but is also a spot that could be ripe for a free agent addition or a trade for a veteran or, or, or something like that going into 2024. We're still a couple of weeks away, you know, the conclusion of the World Series and then more 10 more days after that before teams decide what, uh, you know, player options or, or I should say team options they're executing, uh, whether player options are going to be uh, going to be activated by their individual players, all that good stuff. Still got a while before really we can kind of start to put an off-season plan together for the 2024 Sox before we've got a little bit more clarity, which I think you know often helps because you get some you know some injury conversation that pops up. Anyway, we're, we're a little ways away from really prognosticating, so reviewing and previewing a bit the the production you had and the production that you've got on hand seems to be the uh, the business at hand here at White Sox Weekly. Now. Along with talking about outfield defense, and, and this is kind of what led me here, you know, obviously the Gold Glove finalists have been announced in both the American League and National League, and the White Sox have one finalist. I know you know who it is, uh, but as we reveal these names, which have already been, all right, we'll just do it. How about that? We'll just do it. Luis Robert Jr. is a Gold Glove finalist in center field. Now, the awards themselves will be revealed November 5th, 
7.30 p.m. Eastern Time, so that is Checks Watch, 6.30 p.m. Local Time. Uh, we'll find out exactly who wins those gold gloves. And and as we talked about a lot in the last month, month and a half of, of White Sox Weekly during the season, Luis Robert Jr. has some... Um, some pretty stiff competition in center field for this gold glove. If he wins, it would be his second gold glove. Remember, he won the gold glove award in center field his rookie season. The pandemic shortened 2020. He played in 56 games, uh, had a pretty good offensive season, and then all of a sudden in that final month, as you'll recall, things got really difficult for Robert before hitting a mammoth you know, monster home run against the A's in the playoffs uh, en route to his first gold glove award. I don't know whether 2023 is going to net Luis Robert Jr. another gold glove, but I feel incredibly confident in saying Luis Robert Jr. will win another gold glove in center field at some point in his career. He is that kind of good. And as we kind of take a look at, I guess, center field is the position that we're going to kind of review and preview going into 2024, you can't talk about the White Sox outfield without talking about all the spots. It's very rare for um, you know for those teams to not have interconnected issues within the outfield. But for the White Sox, you really could kind of just focus in on center field and just talk about Luis Robert Jr. And I think there's a cool reason for that, and that's that he actually got to a goal that he set for himself. And if it didn't get exactly there, he got as darn close as he could. 145 games played for Luis Robert Jr. in center field. Now, we know the injury um, set him back a little bit. The hand injury set him back a little bit. He stole base number 20 on his season in Boston against the Red Sox on that wet, slippery, rainy day, and then last missed the last week and a half. So there could have been more games played for Luis Robert Jr. had that uh, particular injury not happened to him. But 145 games is a heck of a lot. Of games, and this is a guy who had never played over a hundred games as as a professional, right? Fifty six in twenty twenty, sixty was the max, of course. Sixty eight in two thousand and twenty one, and ninety eight in two thousand and twenty two. So one forty five. That's a nice big number. Uh, you'd love to hit, see him hit 155, 160 even in 2024. That's uh, that's as many as the big guys play. He got his All-Star nomination. And you know we talked a lot about, um, or All-Star nod, rather. He made the team. We've talked a lot about his offense um, throughout the course of the year and a lot in our two-hour episode wrap-up um, of the White Sox 2023 year. That was two weeks ago. So I, I think I'll leave some of the offensive conversation for for later on or for other episodes. I think we've talked pretty thoroughly about what Robert is, um, what he wasn't in 2023, and what he could very well still become. And that's one of the league's premier bats to go along with being one of the league's premier defenders. But let's loop this back into the gold glove conversation here just a little bit. The finalists were announced uh, earlier this week. And again, the votes themselves or the uh, the awards themselves will be given out uh, November 5th. In the American League at first base, Nathaniel Lowe for Texas, Ryan Mountcastle for Baltimore, and Anthony Rizzo for the Yankees. Uh, at second base, Mauricio Dubon for the Astros, Andres Jimenez for the Cleveland Guardians, and Marcus Simeon, a Gold Glove finalist at second base for the Rangers. Rangers have a lot of Gold Glove nominees, something to note. At third base, Alex Bregman in Houston, Matt Chapman of the Blue Jays, and Jose Ramirez of the Guardians. No surprises there. At shortstop, 
Carlos Correa of the Twins, Corey Seager of the Rangers, and although Anthony Volpe did not have a good offensive season as a young rookie playing short for the Yankees, he did get a Gold Glove nomination for some stellar defensive play. In left field, Austin Hayes for the Orioles, a player I quite like, Stephen Kwan for the Guardians, and Dalton Varsho of the Blue Jays. In center field, You've got Luis Robert Jr. of the White Sox, Kevin Kiermaier of the Blue Jays, and Julio Rodriguez of the Seattle Mariners. I'm going to read you a little blurb here from the MLB.com article about these finalists. Center field in the American League, they write, might be the closest gold glove race. You have arguably one of the best defensive center fielders in Kiermaier, three gold gloves, going up against two of the most electric young stars of the position in Robert, one gold glove, and J-Rod, who has yet to win one. There were three, they were the three top center fielders in the American League by outs above average in 2023 with Kiermaier and Robert at plus 13 and Rodriguez at plus 12. We'll get back into those numbers in a little bit here. I'll explain them a bit more as we go. But in right field, your finalists, Adolis Garcia of the the Texas Rangers, Kyle Tucker of the Astros, Alex Verdugo of the Boston Red Sox. And he put on a good display against the White Sox when they were in Boston, one of those final weekends, that final weekend road trip of the year. Catcher Jonah Heim of the Rangers, Alejandro Kirk of the Blue Jays, and Adley Rutschman of the Orioles. The pitchers nominated were Jose Barrios of the Blue Jays, Sonny Gray, and Pablo Lopez, both of the Twins. And now we have the Utility Gold Glove Award, which I really like. Len and DJ and I have all talked about this um, at various points during some of the broadcasts in past years. But I really like that we've got a utility gold glove award. We are asking more and more players to play more and more positions, kind of like the days of old, right? That went away for a little while, at least I feel like in the late 80s through the 90s and definitely into the 2000s when we had the, you know, the, the steroid era crop up and defensive versatility went away as guys swung for homers and maybe were a little bit more defensively limited. Uh, but for the utility players, Mauricio Dubon, Zach McKinstry of the Tigers, Dubon of the Astros, and Taylor Walls, who is is an unbelievable defender, in my opinion, um, and apparently everyone else is too, even though he doesn't get a whole lot of run for the Rays, although that could be changing in years to come. Taylor Walls, uh, a gold glove finalist at the utility spot. So those are your finalists. A, a bit more on Robert here, and I'll, I'll talk some about the fight he's in to win this gold glove after a break, and then... Uh, kind of more about the White Sox offensive, or I should say uh, defensive issues in the outfield in 2023, and, and kind of how I see the center field position perhaps taking shape behind Luis Robert Jr., because obviously, you know, barring some drastic shift in team philosophy and in, in kind of where the White Sox are headed in 2024, Robert looks to be as sure a bet as any player to return and play out the, the contract that the White Sox have given him and put himself in line for a big-time contract extension, hopefully with the White Sox, because you, you just love to see great players stick around for a good long time and kind of be that centerpiece. You know, whether the, there's been a lot of conversation here as the offseason has just gotten going, as the postseason still rolls on, you know, where are the White Sox headed? Is this, uh, are, are they retooling some? Do they need to make more drastic changes to the roster? Can they add in some crafty free agent ways and make a couple of good trades to put them back in contention in the AL Central? All those things seem to be on the table and, you know, different kind of levels of reasonable. 
But when you look at really any one of those positions, you can make a very strong argument, whether it's push in, push all in and contend, just you know, to set the spectrum, push all in and contend in 24. Well, you got to have Luis Robert Jr. on your team or break down everything and, and, and launch a hard rebuild on the other end of the spectrum. I think you could even in that circumstance, which I don't think is likely for the White Sox, but even in that circumstance, this is kind of a thought exercise. I think you can make a really good case that Robert is the guy you don't trade if you're breaking everything down. You know, Maybe you move everybody but Robert. I, I think there's a reasonable baseball case to be made. And again, I, I don't think there aren't, haven't been any indications as to that's where the White Sox are going in 2024. But just to set one end of the spectrum against the other, uh, Robert's caught value to just about every team in Major League Baseball. So when we come back, we'll talk a bit about the battle he's in with uh, Kevin Kiermeyer. And Julio Rodriguez of the Blue Jays. Well, Kiermaier's going to be a free agent, but he was with the Blue Jays last year. And J-Rod, of course, with the Mariners. We'll talk a bit about that fight and how the White Sox should get better, need to get better defensively in the outfield in 2024. So stay with us. That's next. It's White Sox Weekly. I'm Connor McKnight on ESPN 1000. This is White Sox Weekly on Chicago's Home for Sports. ESPN Chicago. Welcome back to White Sox Weekly here on the ESPN 1000. Hard Rock Casino, White Sox Network. I'm Connor McKnight. You can become a White Sox insider today for sweepstakes, special offers, the Friday Five, pre-sales, and other exciting Sox content delivered free to your inbox. Visit WhiteSox.com slash insider today. We've been talking about Luis Robert Jr. for the most part here in the opening of the show. Robert was uh, a nominee, is a nominee for the Gold Glove in center field in the American League. Should he win, it'd be his second Gold Glove award. He took the first one in his rookie season. And I just, you know, in looking back just a little bit, Robert, remember, 2020 was, like, you don't need reminders of it, but 2020 was a weird year when we only played 60 games. He was, according to Baseball Savant, six outs above average in center field in 2020 he played in 56 games so you know you kind of hack the math apart a little bit outs above average is um at its core a counting stat right so more games played means an ability to create more outs above average 56 is about a third of 162 games so you multiply that six by a little less than three and you come up with a little less than eight it's probably something between 16 15, 16, 17 outs above average in 2020 had he played a full season. Obviously, everybody doesn't. So, you know, maybe a little bit better in terms of outs above average than 2023. Maybe right on. You know, who knows? It's right about that point. But Baseball Savant also, I think, does kind of a cool job of breaking things down a little bit in terms of the direction of his play, right? Going back to his left, Robert was a plus one in center in 2020. This year, plus five. Going straight back, minus two in 2020. This year, plus one. Going back to his right, plus three in 2020, plus four this year. Going back at all, right, that means he's a plus 10 in 2023 and he's only plus one. Really, Robert made... Um, kind of his outs above average happened for himself in his first glove season, gold glove season, I should say, by coming in on the ball. 
And this year, based on positioning, and I would guess jump and range, and expected catch percentage, right, the number of catches you get to that other guys just don't, right? He's been better in 2023, kind of going back on the ball. And I I think, too, you know, Robert had that, um, you know, that that really spectacular debut, like those first two and a half weeks in Houston. He took a couple of balls away from, I think, Kyle Tucker at the wall, amongst others. He robbed a couple of home runs early on. he gone. He went to the wall better in this year than he had ever in the past. Played the wall better, and that's a difficult skill to do. You'll see a lot of good, maybe not a lot, but a good number of solid outfielders who just don't really feel all that comfortable around the wall. And I think for center fielders, because they'll have to play both gaps, right, the left center gap and the right center gap, those home run balls, those those uh, you know wall scrapers can be robbed, and they're going to get more ability to do that because they cover more ground than just a left fielder or just a right fielder. Um, you think back to guys like you know people who made their names doing this kind of stuff, Adam Jones and Torrey Hunter for Baltimore and, and, and Minnesota – Sox fans need very little reminding about Torrey Hunter. He was a darn good player and an incredible outfielder. And as the story goes, when he hit free agency and went out to the Angels, there were some other teams that wanted him, but Torrey wasn't all that interested in going to places that didn't have a wall where you could, as an outfielder, rob a home run. Uh, Wrigley Field would be one of those places. Not only is it incredibly painful to go back into the Ivy if it's even there and hit a brick wall, it is also impossible to jump up and over that basket they've got out there to catch home runs and the whole thing. So, you know, Torrey wanted to go to a place where you could rob home runs because why wouldn't you? It, it's a great way to help a team, too, right? It's not just kind of a, you know, web gem, sports center kind of deal. Anyway, Robert is is in a battle in center field for this Gold Glove Award. When you sort baseball savant by outs above average created by center fielders in 2023, Robert pops up tied for second on the list. Number one is a National Leaguer named Brenton Doyle, who the White Sox saw briefly when they were in Colorado halfway through the season, or just past the halfway point of the season, I think. Um, Doyle had been playing an amazing center field, struggled to hit a little bit in his rookie year, but my goodness, I mean, you get look at all of the um, the defensive numbers in the outfield, and Brenton Doyle leads just like everybody. Kevin Kiermeyer, despite being 34, 35 years old, has put up another incredible defensive season um, and hit well enough this year to to get the playing time that you need to be considered a gold glover. Kiermaier, I don't think I need to remind you, you've been watching the Sox a long time and you've seen Kevin Kiermaier for a long time, can be kind of vulnerable in years he's um, kind of struggling to hit. I mean, the bat's never been his calling card, right? It's always been his premier defense even since coming up in 2013 with the Tampa Bay Rays. Um, the three gold gloves in the past for him. His career high in OPS was in 2017 when he had an OPS of 788. So it's not like he's ever been you know, magnificent with the bat. The OPS plus career high, 117 in 2014. So still... You've got to hit enough. You know, it used to be gold gloves were kind of like uh, one on reputation and whether you were a good hitter and also perceived to be a, a decent defender. Now I think with the Fielding Bible Awards and a much better measurement um, and much better understanding of defense throughout the game, it really is more on did you pick up the ball and throw it over first if you're on the infield or did you go catch everything that you could possibly catch. Anyway, for Kiermaier, he hit fairly well this year and avoided being kind of taken out 
uh, against a lot of lefties. He hits left, obviously, and that helps in a pursuit of a gold glove. Robert's a little bit the same way, right? I mean, that guy was hitting second or third, and sometimes fourth, pretty much all the way through the season because he was healthy as anybody on the White Sox roster and the best player on the roster. I mean, he's he's that guy. So Robert and Kiermaier tied for 13 outs above average. Julio Rodriguez, who is the other finalist, had 12 outs above average. And depending on how you cut it, you can find some places where Robert is better than the, his, his fellow finalists, and you can find some places where he's not quite as good. Kiermaier comes in on the ball better than Robert, at least did last year. Robert goes back on the ball a whole lot better. If you just like baseball savant, if you slide over to fan graphs, and I, I don't mean to make this whole thing a math lesson, but you know some of this stuff, you, you get automatic points or, or kind of consideration based on some of these ratings, and you know when you sort by fan graphs, defensive runs above average, then Robert is, is actually seventh in baseball, and amongst American League center fielders, he is uh Fifth, right? So Varsho, Dalton Varsho, the Blue Jays, Kevin Kiermeyer, Jose Siri, and Jake Myers all have better defensive runs saved numbers on fan graphs than Luis Robert Jr. does. It's not going to knock him out of things necessarily. Um, reputation does matter in, in something like this. And, you know, narrative is, is a deal here, right? I mean, Kiermeyer's not much of a thrower of the baseball, but neither is Luis Robert Jr. And, you know, Jose Rodriguez can throw the baseball a, a, a little bit, I, I think, or at least has made some highlights in doing so. You look at the numbers and it's not there, but, you know, you can look at the highlights and that, that matters, I think, and it matters quite a bit. Um, by the way, Julio Rodriguez has a 5.4 defensive runs saved based on fan graphs, and that puts him uh, 11th in baseball and, let's see, ninth, three spots behind Luis Robert Jr. in center field. Still... It's going to be a fun thing to watch on November 5th and find out exactly where and hopefully when Luis Robert Jr. wins his next Gold Glove Award is in 2024. Hey, I mentioned, though, you know, since we're in the review preview era of White Sox Weekly, you know, this part of our offseason, I think in, in looking back, it's difficult for me. You know, I don't have a lot of things to say about Luis Robert Jr. As it, when it comes to, well, here's how he'd get better defensively. I, I kind of feel like that's what you saw in this last season is is kind of peak kind of stuff. There, there are some things maybe he could throw a little bit better, get the ball in a little faster. Yeah, absolutely. Fundamental things. Every player has them that they can do better more often or just do more often to be better and, and affect the team in a more positive way. I Sure, absolutely. But when you look at center field, the White Sox turned to a couple of guys who, you know, veterans, Trace Thompson, um, not much with the bat, good offense, good defensively, and, and probably won't be a factor for the White Sox in 2024. Oscar Colas played a lot of center field in relief of Luis Robert Jr. And we've talked quite a bit about the struggles that Colas had both at the plate and in the outfield just from a you know getting ready to play and, and covering the basics kind of scenario for Colas. So I wouldn't be surprised at all, depending on the direction the offseason takes for the White Sox, whether Oscar Colas, or I wouldn't be surprised at all if Oscar Colas does not have an inside track to an opening day roster situation and may have to begin the year at AAA Charlotte to earn his way back onto the big league club um, from either an offensive or defensive standpoint. Which means that as you kind of search for solutions 
in center field, you know, behind, I'm not saying you're replacing Luis Robert at all. Don't get it twisted. I'm just saying Robert may need a day here or two. He played 145 games. You'd like to get him off his feet every now and again. And God forbid injury strikes or something else happens. You'd like to have somebody cover, be able to cover center field. Maybe you're in a blowout and you want to get Robert out of the game because it's raining in Boston and you don't want to risk anything. You you put somebody else in and, and play some. Um, still having that fourth outfielder that, in my mind, can cover a handful of positions is a, a pretty critically important thing. So as we look through kind of center field, when we come back in terms of free agency and maybe even some trade targets the White Sox might be able to uh, to snap off of other rosters, I, I wonder about the White Sox outfield defense some. And, and this is where we'll take the center field review preview episode and kind of branch into left and right. We'll do deeper dives on each one of those positions later on in the offseason. But coming back, just how Luis Robert Jr. and everybody else not named Luis Robert Jr. has affected that outfield defense in 2023 and how it's got to change in 24. I'm Connor McKnight. You're listening to White Sox Weekly on the Hard Rock Casino White Sox Network. Chicago's home for sports is the home of the Chicago White Sox. This is White Sox Weekly on ESPN 1000. Welcome back into White Sox Weekly. I'm Connor McKnight. You're listening to the ESPN 1000 Hard Rock Casino White Sox Network. Sox fans, are you planning a special occasion and looking for the perfect location? Well, we got you covered. When you reserve your group outing for 2024, you get priority access to the biggest matchups and best space for your group. For more information, visit whitesox.com slash groups. Told you we'd look into some of the free agent class in the outfield and uh, a little bit about the defense all, all over the place or all over the outfield for the White Sox heading into 2024, and we will in just a little bit. But I wanted to dig in real quickly to the Arizona Fall League. It is, if you haven't heard me talk about it before, one of my absolute favorite things about baseball. More on that in a second. But, you know, White Sox prospect Colson Montgomery, shortstop prospect, is playing in the Fall League. He is the highest-ranked prospect on MLB Pipeline uh, to be participating in the Fall League. Not just not the highest-ranked White Sox prospect to be participating in the AFL, but the highest-ranked prospect on their top 100 to be participating in the AFL. He has been uh, making a mark. He hit a 111.8 mile an hour triple down the right field line on Thursday. And that swing of his, uh, the, the body style, that swing of his, the athleticism at his size, six foot three, six foot four, it's drawing a whole lot of comparisons to, uh, to Corey Seeger uh, of the Texas Rangers. He, he has long been compared to the, uh, the tall, kind of lanky, bigger Corey Seeger. There was a lot of conversation uh, about Corey Seeger when he was coming up with the Dodgers organization that he may not be able to stick at short because of his size. You just don't see too many, sure, some, uh, but not too many guys that size play a solid shortstop at the big league level. And, and to be fair, Corey Seager's rankings at shortstop, his defensive ratings, weren't all that great this past season, but more than passable considering what he gave the Rangers with the bat in 2024. And you could say the most, uh, mostly the same things about his time with the Dodgers, too. Still, we are now kind of getting into that era of taller and taller, lankier and lankier guys at short who can play a solid defense for their ball clubs. You think about O'Neill Cruz with the Pittsburgh Pirates or Ellie De La Cruz for the Cincinnati Reds, right? I mean, those are guys at 6'7", 6'8", 6'9", playing that shortstop position at a high level with some solid 
all-around athleticism, too. Montgomery had a back issue at the beginning of the 2023 season, and it halted his start in a pretty serious way. He made a lot of errors at short at AA this year for the White Sox, but you wonder if that health wasn't something that prevented him from potentially putting up some better production defensively. Offensively, at least in the Arizona Fall League, Montgomery's hitting 255 with a 280 on base. A lot of swing and miss there, but a lot of home run pop as well. The slugging percentage is huge for Colson Montgomery at 553 in the AFL. And uh, the exit velocities all across the board have been big. Uh, courtesy of MLB.com, Colson Montgomery spoke a little bit after a big night on Thursday night, talked about the production he's been able to put up in the AFL and the comps he's been getting to Corey Seager. Here's Colson Montgomery. Yeah, I just try and go up and hit the ball hard, you know, and especially in that situation we had one out, I think, and base was loaded. I was just trying to put the ball in play to give us an opportunity to get some runs across the board. I mean, we got down early, but, I mean, I mean, in, in the fall league, you know, everybody's good, so you never know what's going to happen. I've heard you talk a little bit before about Corey Seager and kind of how, like, you guys think you have, you or you think that you have a little bit of a similar swing to him. Yeah. What are some of the things in his game that you try to emulate when you're out there? Uh, I mean, just the fact that he's a big shortstop, too, you know, mm-hmm. and I'm a big shortstop, so just watching the way how he presets in the infield and also how he swings and things like that, especially being a big body, you know, I mean, it's not easy being 6'4 and playing shortstop and also being able to swing, so, I mean, I just look at his game and just try and take little things from it. You talk to these other guys and you talk to dudes from other organizations and I mean, a lot. some of the stuff is we talk about, like, uh, approach, you know, and, mm. and strikes on discipline. And sometimes they'll give it to you, you know what I mean? And they're human, too. The pitches are human. It's not like they're going to throw strikes every single time. Mm. So there's times where I get in a habit of being on swing mode all the time. So, I mean, we talk in the dugout and clubhouse and things about being patient, having a good approach. So kind of cool to get a listen to, uh, to the White Sox top prospect. I don't know what the ETA is for Montgomery specifically. I would guess, and you talk to some scouts, you know, you read some write-ups by MLB Pipeline and other places that do a great job of evaluating prospects, and you kind of hear that, you know, if he had a great 2024 minor league season, then depending on the shape the White Sox are in at the major league level, you might be able to see him make his major league debut in 2024, but most likely it's a 2025 ETA. Remember, he's a high school draft pick uh, at 19 years old and has done nothing but put up solid offensive numbers for the White Sox in the minors. Uh, injuries have been an issue, uh, as they often are for many players, that back issue being the, the big one. And whether or not he's going to stay at short is obviously a fair question. Although I kind of think that regardless of who you are at short, there's only a a small class of prospects about whom you'd say, yes, this player will stay at short defensively throughout the the prime of his career uh, before one of two things moves him off of short. His offensive production... Uh, may cost him playing time, right? You know, that's that's the next guy coming up and being better offensively. And while this guy's a good glove guy, I'm not talking about Colson specifically. I'm talking about just kind of shortstop prospects. So while this player might be a great glove guy, you're just your team's looking for more offense. He's not getting it done offensively, uh, and you kind of move him off of short or maybe even to the bench or another situation. Or 
you know, just kind of the size and, and injury doesn't allow him to get to that kind of range. You know, as you age, you know, Miguel Cabrera, who's, who's retiring and going into the Hall of Fame in five years from now, uh, came up a shortstop, moved over to third, played a little outfield in, in his early couple of years, but was very quickly relegated. Well, I shouldn't say very quickly, but fairly quickly relegated uh, to a corner position uh, and then exclusively first and then DH as the years went on. So this, I mean, it, it happens to guys. And obviously with Miguel Cabrera, we're talking about one of the best right-handed batters uh, in baseball history, certainly in the last era. And, you know, it, it's not quite apples to apples with, with any prospect, Miguel Cabrera, to anybody else. It's a, it's a literal Hall of Famer. Um, but you understand the point, kind of the scouting aspect, the point of it. Now, a little bit on the Arizona Fall League. I, about this time of year is about when I tell you about it. If you've been listening to White Sox Weekly for a while, maybe you've heard me talk about it before. I highly, if you are a baseball fanatic, right, if it's in your blood, if you've got to get out to games, and if you're looking for a little bit of a vacation, I, or maybe you got kids, uh, you know, this, is, this would be a great trip for kind of that, um, you know, early high school, you know, late middle school, you know, 7th, 8th, ninth, 10th grade, that kind of thing, that kind of high school kid who's really into baseball. Go to the Arizona Fall League. Go for a long weekend. You can get into any game for just a couple of bucks. You'll sit wherever you want. The ballparks in Phoenix are absolutely, you know, Phoenix and surrounding area, whether it's Camelback, uh, whether it's Salt River Fields. I mean, they are, they're fantastic. The views are great. The weather's good. Uh, there's playoff baseball down there right now with the Diamondbacks still in it. So yeah, probably some more crowds than you'd think. But one of my favorite things about going to the Arizona Fall League is you, you plop down in some seats. You spot some guys wearing, you know, with the Oakley tans. Uh, just over their ears and a quarter zip and probably wearing all birds or something like that. Th- those are your scouts. Th- there will be scouts there. You can go, you can sit kind of close to a-, a scout, a group of scouts. You will hear them talk about players on the field. You'll hear that conversation. You'll, you'll feel a little bit like you're in a front office, like you're in a draft room and, and kind of get that inside information about it. Most scouts, don't tell them I told you this, most scouts are happy to talk just a little bit. I mean, if they're not literally writing reports during the game, don't bug them during an inning. Just in between innings, say something like, uh, who are you here for? Who you got tonight? You know, that, that kind of thing. That'll usually get a scout talking. And, and at the Arizona Fall League, for sure, they're, they're more than willing to, most are, are more than willing to share a little time with you, explain the little ga- game a little bit, and, and kind of what they're looking for in, in terms of players. I... I love, I've made probably uh, five straight, six straight Arizona Fall League trips um, back in, you know, a couple of years ago when I was, I was doing this job the first time around and, and just, just had so much fun doing it. To say nothing of the fact that it's a great place to visit, especially as the weather turns here in Chicago and stays pretty darn warm uh, in Phoenix. So that's, that's my pitch for the Arizona Fall League. Now, I told you before the break that we were going to talk a little bit about the free agent options for the White Sox. To, to kind of fill out the rest of the outfield, we're doing the review preview series here, and we focused on center field. We talked a lot about Luis Robert Jr.'s chances at winning a gold glove for the second time in his, already, in his young career. Second time already in his young career, easy for me to say. Um, but when you look at the White Sox outfield options, you know they went through a handful uh, over this last season, and they have for the last couple of seasons. I, for a while now, have been kind of adjusting my philosophy in terms of team building and how much defense matters. 
we've known for a long time that having a premier center fielder is is key to having a defense, right? You think up the middle, you have a great catcher, you want a great shortstop, you want a very good second baseman and a solid center fielder. Ball's up the middle, you don't have to worry because it's it's one of those four guys or you've got your catcher involved. And, and you've got a really good chance of turning a batted ball into an out. I am of the opinion that corner outfield defense matters more now than maybe it ever had before. And obviously it's a it's a biased opinion because I, I can't say that I've watched baseball in the 60s or 70s, not to any great extent. I'm, I'm not that old. I haven't done it. But having seen it for a while now, we, we have more pull hitters than ever before. Balls in the air so much more than ever before, which means corner guys, you know, whether you're left-handed or right-handed, if you're pulling the ball, that's either left field or right field. That means corner outfielders need to be better defensively. And I, I think... If you looked around at some of the playoff teams, and I don't know that they're necessarily the cipher for everything, it's like not everything a playoff team does or a World Series winner does is going to be the way you need to run your team in the coming season, but you take some clues from it, right? And I think corner outfield defense matters quite a bit. I think the White Sox have gotten by with Luis Robert Jr. in center field, covering that ground that the corner outfielders defensively kind of couldn't. You know, whether you look at Andrew Vaughn or Gavin Sheets, guys who aren't natural outfielders playing their spot. Andrew Benintendi, if you look at some of the numbers, we'll get into left and right specifically here in the coming weeks. But Benintendi did not have a great year defensively. He talked at the end of the season, and Pedro Grafol talked a lot at the end of the season. We mentioned the interview he did with Vinny Duber of CHGO uh, at our end-of-season wrap-up um, about how Benintendi was, was not playing at 100% for a long time this year. That mostly affected him offensively, but if it affects him there, it's got to affect him some defensively too. So you're looking at, at guys to kind of fill out that center field spot, you know, offer you defense, not just when Luis Robert Jr. needs to leave a game for whatever reason or doesn't play that day or what have you, but also a, a guy I think that can fill in in the corner spot. Now, obviously, Cody Bellinger, who played last year for the Cubs and was not traded at the deadline, is the premier free agent in the outfield, right? At 28 years old, he had a great season, a former MVP, and a guy who's going to get the big contract. He is left-handed. He can play a corner, as uh, which I mentioned, and he's played first base as well. I don't know whether the White Sox have their sights set on a big-time free agent like that in 24, but you could make an argument for Cody Bellinger fitting really well under that White Sox lineup and then building around the rest of the way. Whether that happens or not, you're still looking at some others to fill in. Aaron Hicks and Kevin Kiermaier, who we talked a lot about, would be kind of your defensive first and, and maybe fill in with the bat kind of guys. Um, you've got some other, Teoscar Hernandez, primarily a right fielder, but has been able to cover center in the past. Michael Conforto may or may not opt out of a deal uh, with the Giants. Whit Merrifield has a buyout option with the Blue Jays. And while you know second base seems to be the position that he's headed for now in his age 35 season, he has covered a corner uh, for years. I don't know if he necessarily covers center anymore. Um, Joey Gallo is a pre- uh, pending free agent. Tommy Pham is a pending free agent. Jerks and Profar, who had a really rough 2023, except for a couple of different points. It was a weird season for Profar. Defensively, he's never been regarded as all that great, so I think you can kind of rule that one out. Lourdes Gurriel Jr. is 30 years old, a pending free agent, and playing in the playoffs now. I think you could do a lot worse um, than, than signing Lourdes Gurriel if you're a, pl- a team that wants to contend. I'm not talking about just the White Sox, but I've really liked what I've seen from Gurriel both at the plate and defensively, and kind of think that at age 30, he still has some room to grow. You know, not, not into a superstar, a tier one player in left. And, and with the Diamondbacks, 
Guriel has been in left while they've had a lot of other center field type guys, right? Like Varsho in years past and Alec Thomas and McCartney. Like they have a lot of guys who can cover a lot of ground. So Guriel's just been the dude out there to handle a steady left. I think he's got more ability to perhaps cover some ground than left field. So just a handful of names, none of them necessarily inspiring outside of, of Corey Seager. It's just not a free agent class with a whole bunch of big, shiny names in terms of uh, offensively. D, uh, from the pitching side, it's, it's a lot different, and we'll talk about that in coming weeks as well. But just some names there, and I think you could probably find some favorites and some probables maybe even uh, to kind of fill out another two outfield spots. The White Sox have, you know, in, in the past couple of years, since 2021, had to rely on surprise performances from some outfielders coming up from the minor leagues in order to keep the ball club afloat while injuries and, and kind of some clunky alignment has forced them to use that depth. Um, that did not pan out in 2023, and I think a more coordinated effort uh, to sign some frontline guys, again, not Tier 1 players, but definitely guys who can start, you know, handle starts. Uh, would be an important fit for the Sox. When we come back, we'll wrap things up. We've got a, a Hall of Fame class or a potential Hall of Fame class coming up in just a little bit. We'll give you some names there. That's on White Sox Weekly. It's the ESPN 1000 Hard Rock Casino White Sox Network. White Sox Weekly with Connor McKnight. On the home of the White Sox. ESPN Chicago, Chicago's home for sports. We are talking White Sox. This is White Sox Weekly. If you miss the show, we put the podcast up on the ESPN Chicago app. So listen on your time. White, White Sox, Sox Weekly. Weekly. ESPN Chicago. Chicago's home for sports. We are closing it up here on White Sox Weekly. Another one-hour edition of the show. Nearly complete. Time flies. Uh, it is the off-season, so every Saturday we're here for you from 2 until 3 o'clock, talking White Sox, talking baseball, talking playoffs. Although, I'll admit, less playoff conversation now since we're like right in the thick of turning points here between in the ALCS and the NLCS. Next Saturday, we will be, uh, we'll be just on the verge of Game 2 of the World Series, whatever that matchup is going to be. Uh, next Friday night is Game 1 of the World Series. And although they've not announced start times yet, I would figure it's an evening start on next Saturday uh, for Game 2 of the World Series. So we'll kind of wrap up the ALCS and NLCS uh, from our perspective here as, as kind of White Sox observers next week on the show. And if you've missed a White Sox weekly episode, you can download each and every one of them at the ESPN Chicago app. Just download the app. You get all of our fine shows available to you on the app. You click the thing. It opens up. The station starts playing. It's great. It's fantastic. And then you can download everything, too. Uh, So if you missed an interview uh, like we had the other week, um, with uh, Brian Bannister, the new director of pitching for the White Sox. You can go download that. It was a really good talk, uh, for instance. If you want to share that with your friends, you very well can. You can also stay up to date on all things White Sox by following the team's official social media accounts. Don't miss a minute of the action on and off the field. Follow the White Sox at White Sox on all social media platforms today. We mentioned before the break that there's uh, the Hall of Fame has announced the Next Era Committee Uh, It's an eight-person ballot for the Hall of Fame. Here's how that works. Any candidate who receives votes on 75% of the ballots cast by the committee will earn election to the National Baseball Hall of Fame and get inducted in Cooperstown July 21st, 2024. Now, this is not the the open ballot, right? This isn't the player's ballot. This is the, the era 
ballot. The eight contemporary baseball era manager, executive, umpire finalists, right? It's not the sexiest class, but, I, you know, it's, it's, it's I mean, it's a players, it's, it's managers, it's umpires. It's guys and names you know and love, all that kind of stuff. So the, the available for your consideration, eight candidates. Cito Gaston managed 12 seasons, all with the Blue Jays' back-to-back World Series titles in 92 and 93, and uh, was a manager of one Darren Jackson back in the day. Davey Johnson managed 17 seasons for the Mets, Reds, Orioles, Dodgers, and Nationals. 1,372 wins, 562 winning percentage, 13th all-time among managers with at least 10 years of work. Jim Leland managed the Pirates, Marlins, Rockies, and Tigers for 22 years. 1,769 wins. Manager of the Year awards in 90, 92, and 2006. Won the 1997 World Series as manager of the Marlins. Ed Montague was a National League umpire in 1974. Hank Peters debuted in 74, full-time crew in 1976, and then worked a whole lot longer. Hank Peters spent 42 years in baseball front offices, starting with the Browns and the Reds, and then the A's general manager in 65, and he helped build that 1970s A's dynasty. Lou Pinella is up for the Hall of Fame, managed 23 seasons for the Yankees, Reds, Mariners, Rays, and Cubs. Joe West, who is now friends with Hawk Harrelson after years of antagonism, uh, is eligible for the Baseball Hall of Fame. And I don't, I mean, it's kind of cool. It's really cool the way Hawk and Joe kind of buried the hatchet and have become good friends in their years uh, in retirement or in their later years, I suppose. Uh, Joe West is more than likely going to make the Hall of Fame, probably for his umpiring, probably not for his country music work. Uh, Bill White served as president of the National League from 89 until 94 uh, after having been a player and a broadcaster. So they're all up for the Hall of Fame. I I find these things to be, you know, the era ballots to be fun. I think it's cool to kind of remember some. Just a quick story, too. I was a young reporter covering the White Sox when the Tigers were in town. I want to say this was in 2010 or 2011, either the second to last or last year of Ozzie Guillen uh, managing the White Sox. And the Tigers were in town. I was asked by my boss to go grab some sound from the Tigers clubhouse. So I went into the manager's office, the visiting manager's office with the rest of the scribes to, uh, to listen to Jim Leland talk and grab some sound from that. It was a big series at the time. And there was Jim Leland with his feet up on the desk watching a golf tournament. Every reporter in there kind of hushed and watching the golf tournament along with Leland. It was later on in the season, and for the life of me, I couldn't tell you what golf tournament it was. I don't think it was anything spectacular. I just think Leland was watching golf. He was in his long underwear and his Tigers jersey unbuttoned. He had a pack of smokes on the desk, and I don't think he smoked anywhere in the ballpark. You're not allowed to, after all, but if anyone could have found a spot, it was probably Jim Leland. And they're just holding court, right? I mean... He was, he was quiet. He was watching golf. Uh, someone would take a swing and a shot. He'd say something about the, the golf tournament. And then a, play, a, a reporter would say, you know, Jim, if you don't mind me asking, ask a question. Jim would wrap up the answer in a couple of seconds, get to the next golf shot, and everyone would wait for the next golf shot to be hit. And that's how, that's how the pregame presser worked. I was, like I said, a very young reporter. I mean, this was my first, maybe even second year working here in town. And I didn't realize that that's how it worked for some managers. I didn't know that that's the kind of, you know, because you come from covering Ozzie Guillen's pregame pressers, and it's just, you know, question here, question there, back and forth. It's it's like an Aaron Sorkin show with all the amount of dialogue. And with Leland, very much different, very much uh, more of a Robert Redford kind of style. 
more quietude than anything else, but a whole lot of information and a whole lot of baseball knowledge. So I, fun story, and I just thought I'd relate it to you. That's going to do it for us here on White Sox Weekly. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back next week, so don't miss it. This is ESPN 1000. This is White Sox Weekly. White Sox Weekly. On Chicago's home for sports. On the ESPN Chicago app. 100.3 HD2 and ESPN 1000.